Minus 15. Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfume. Oh my goodness. Five, four, three, two, one. From inside the warehouse at Oriole Park at Camden Yards, it is the Masson All Access Podcast. Paul Mancano and Brendan Mortensen here with you. Brendan, an exciting addition to the Masson All Access Podcast set. One toothbrush. Yeah. Incredibly exciting. I mean, it makes the entire podcast set look so much better. We came here a week ago or two weeks ago with a Oriole Bird toothbrush holder but no toothbrush and melanie newman friend of the pod was able to procure an orioles toothbrush for us i don't know how much it cost i really hope it didn't break the bank yeah uh but well, you would think for an orioles toothbrush that probably breaks the bank but we're, we're hoping for the best the this orioles toothbrush will not get used in the way it was intended no to brush teeth but it will serve a better purpose than most toothbrushes will. Yeah. The only thing is this toothbrush holder, Brendan, I don't know if you can see, but it's supposed to go in his hands. It doesn't fit. Oh, it doesn't that's fit tough. in the bird's hand, so I just kind of squeeze it in like he's hugging the toothbrush. Right. This was not the Orioles toothbrush that was originally designed for this toothbrush holder. Was there one? Maybe. We, I, I don't Maybe think it, it was came just meant with a toothbrush. I think it was meant for a generic actually use it toothbrush. It's, it's going to be a skinny toothbrush that can fit right in there. Right. A child. Little did they know. If you will, a child's toothbrush. Right. Because it is a child's toy. But little did they know that this toothbrush holder would have such greater meaning than honestly, just holding a toothbrush. It's the centerpiece of this set. The it, podcast would fall apart without it. Honestly. So let, let's, uh, you know, let's keep that in mind. Thank you to Melanie Newman yeah. for the addition there. What an opening act the Orioles had at home yesterday as they won two to nothing. An exciting home opener. One of the better games we've seen at Camden Yards, I think, in a, in a while. Just the combination of the crowd, the festivities, the fact that this is the first true home opener that we've had really since 2019. Everything came together yesterday, Brendan. The Orioles got it done with a win over the Brewers. Yeah, I have not been covering the Orioles all that long. This is the loudest I have, I think, ever heard Camden Yards. You, yeah, you the were most not here in people, 2014. I was not here for Delman Young's double. This is the loudest I have ever heard Camden Yards, it, which is really cool. Yeah, so when Cedric Mullins drove in the runs uh, early in that game and Jorge Mateo slid in, the eruption from the crowd was pretty exciting. Yeah, you could have sworn. I mean, what, that was the third inning, maybe? Yeah, It felt like the Orioles just scored the go-ahead runs in, like, the ninth. Yeah. It was but exciting. It, it was exciting uh, stuff yesterday and exciting for the Orioles to get their first home victory. And now that we are four games into the 2022 season, Brendan and I are here to react either appropriately or overreact to what we've seen through the first four games. An absolutely minuscule sample size that we're seeing from the Orioles so far. But Brendan, we have a a sample size nonetheless. Yeah. And therefore, we're going to discuss some of the storylines that we've seen through the first four games and whether or not they will be storylines going forward. Yeah, it's only been four games, but I think that gives us enough time to make rash generalizations about the entire season and make predictions based off of the incredibly small sample size that we have. So let's start with the good. Yes. Let's start with Jorge Mateo, who scored 
the what would end up being, you know, the game winning run. Technically not game winning, I guess. He scored the second run on that Cedric Mullins RBI single yesterday, showing his speed. Brendan, we thought coming into the season that Jorge Mateo may be their opening day shortstop, may have a chance to solidify that spot, but not guaranteed because we didn't see a whole lot of him last year in Baltimore. They claimed him off waivers late in the season, and he got hurt a couple weeks into his tenure with Baltimore. That had to end his season, so we thought surely the Orioles like him enough to bring him back to keep him on their 40-man roster, but do they believe that he deserves a shot to be an everyday shortstop? And so far, the answer is yes. Yeah, and truthfully, Jorge Mateo, I think, has more potential than any other shortstop on this roster right now. Ramon Arias has looked pretty good so far, but I think you would probably prefer to have Ramon Arias at either second base or third base rather than as your starting shortstop. And Jorge Mateo, he may be kind of viewed as a stopgap until you get to the likes of Jordan Westberg or Gunnar Henderson, but he's not playing like one right now. Jorge Mateo, he is not mashing the ball, but his plate discipline has been fantastic. And if he can get on the bases, his biggest attribute and his best attribute is his speed. And I don't know if we are going to see this be a trend for the entire season, but at least through the first four games of the year, something is clicking with Jorge Mateo. Somebody said, you are so fast, just get on base, and it's almost an automatic second base if you walk. Yeah, for guys in Jorge Mateo's category who are, like you said, stop gaps, so to speak, I think the important thing is that they capitalize on their above-average traits, and they lean into them so that they can carve out a role for themselves going forward so that when Jordan Westberg and Gunnar Henderson and Joey Ortiz eventually make their debuts, somebody like Jorge Mateo can stick around, and that's exactly what he's done. I mean, the fact that he, again, tiny sample size, but has shown great plate discipline. So far, he's three for his first 12 at the plate, which is not great, but he's got four walks. And getting on first for him is like getting on second. He's got two stolen bases, and he hasn't been caught yet. He is blazing on the base pass. So if he can just get to first, he can set the table for some of the guys behind him who can drive him in potentially because it's it's automatic. We saw yesterday, he got late in the game. He got on first. It was when they loaded the bases at that one point. And he, and he got on first and he stole second so easily because there was a runner on third. And typically, it's easier to steal that base because there's a runner on third and the right. catcher doesn't want to throw down to second. But it sets the table because then you have two runners in scoring position automatically. So Jorge Mateo can use his speed to carve out a role for himself going forward. Right, and as you saw, a single can score Jorge Mateo from second. Yeah. If it's hit to the outfield. And yes, like you mentioned, the batting average of 250 is not fantastic. The 438 on base percentage is really, really good. His plate discipline improved a little bit when he came to Baltimore last year. He had seven walks in 116 plate appearances with the O's in just a 32-game sample size. And in San Diego, he only had two walks in 93 plate appearances over a stretch of 57 games in 2021. That's good for nine total walks in 209 plate appearances. Right. He has almost half of that in four games. That's insane. Yeah, it's impressive. And if it's a skill that he can use going forward, again, it's tiny sample size. And oftentimes, guys will make adjustments from the offseason or early in a season, and those adjustments don't stick as the season goes along and they fall back into their habits. We'll see if Jorge Mateo can continue this. But 
I also give the Orioles credit for saying this guy's 26, 27 years old. He hasn't gotten an opportunity elsewhere, a, a starting opportunity. Remember, he bounced around different positions and was never really a roster fixture when he was with San Diego. Now he has an opportunity. So let's give him a start every day. Right. And the big thing, too, his speed, like we mentioned, his biggest attribute, he's got two stolen bases already. In 2021, he only had 10 total because he just wasn't getting on base as much. So even if the on-base percentage continues to tick up a little bit and the walk percentage improves from the abysmal 4.3% that it was last season, he's going to steal a lot more than 10 bases. Yeah. Because you have to be on base to steal bases. And we'll see exactly how long this lasts. Because we talked about in our season predictions a week ago, Jordan Westberg, Gunnar Henderson, those Joey Ortiz, all of them are at Bowie, but all of them are most likely going to be called up, especially with the way they started the season, going to get called up to Norfolk, and then they're a call away from Baltimore. Right. So all three of those guys are candidates to be in Baltimore and by season's end. Jorge Mateo has to hold them off. He and, has to keep producing. And I think, realistically, when you are looking at Jorge Mateo long-term, he's probably not going to be your everyday shortstop once a Jordan Westberg or Gunnar Henderson is at the major league level. But if Jorge Mateo can play well enough this season, I think realistically he can be a pretty good utility man. Because if he can play shortstop, he can probably play second. And he has played outfield so far in his career. Hasn't been great in the outfield, but he has the speed and the athleticism to be able to work there. So I think if he shows enough improvement this season, that's a utility guy going forward. Look, with a 26-man roster, it's probably more important for a winning ball club, but you could use a pinch runner. Yeah. That's never out of the question. You can have opportunities late in game to sub somebody out and to try to sneak home a run when you need it late in the game. Jorge Mateo could, like Ryan McKenna, could be a perfect example of that. We saw McKenna used as a pinch runner at times last year, and it helped him score a game-winning run. So that kind of that kind of skill could be used as well. Yeah, I think he's got a role somewhere, yeah. especially if he keeps improving. All right, continue, continuing with the good, what we saw yesterday specifically, Brendan, Mike Bauman yeah. was outstanding yesterday. And we had some concerns when he made the opening day roster. What is his role going to be? Is he going to be a starter? Is he going to be a reliever? None of these pitchers are expected to go five or six innings just yet. That's not where their arms are because of the shortened spring training. But Mike Bauman, especially we worried about his workload. He came off plenty of injuries last year. He had to rehab through a ball through double a before he got up to triple a last year and eventually made his debut last year but wasn't used as a starter in 2021 at the big league level had to come out of the bullpen because the orioles were still getting his arm back in shape the orioles used him out of the bullpen yesterday and he was outstanding more important than his stats i think is how good his fastball looked because we heard about his plus plus stuff when he was a prospect and we didn't see it for the most part, in 2021, we saw it yesterday. Yeah, and we've talked about the Orioles pitching prospects holistically and have kind of said that Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Hall more than likely are going to succeed. But if you are looking at the long-term future of this Orioles rotation, guys like Mike Bauman and Kyle Bradish need to succeed as well for the back end of the rotation. And what we saw from Mike Bauman yesterday, yes, again, incredibly small sample size. We have literally only seen him pitch two and a third innings so far this year, but just one hit, one walk, struck out three. His fastball, like you mentioned, look awesome. And it's against the Brewers, who are a World Series hopeful caliber team. 
So not offensively, not offensively, but it's still a very good team nonetheless. Yeah. So Mike Bauman, what we saw yesterday, I think was really exciting. And especially if he stays in this tandem role, we could see him go three or four innings pretty consistently to start out the year. Two and a third scoreless. His fastball was averaging 97 yesterday and he touched 98. He threw the fastball 29 times out of 37 pitches and he struck out three in those two and a third scoreless. You look at his 2021 fastball average velocity, 93.6. So his fastball is back up to where it was. And I think we can attribute that decreased velocity last year to him coming back from injury. And that's something Michael Elias specifically mentioned when he made, Bauman made this opening day roster. He said, we weren't necessarily looking at the spring training stats. We were looking at his arm action and his velo. And both of those boxes were checked yesterday. Right. You don't necessarily need to be a box score scout when it comes to Mike Bauman. You need to look at the stuff and you need to look at if he is back fully healthy, like you mentioned last year, struggled with the injury bug. So if Mike Bauman is healthy and you're able to stretch him out a bit, I think we could realistically see him being a more permanent member and actually starting games in this starting rotation rather than just being a tandem guy behind a Bruce Zimmerman or whoever ends up starting today. And you said it earlier Bauman, Alexander Wells, Zach Lowther, Dean Kramer, Keegan Aiken. It's not that all of these guys have to hit for the rebuild to have a successful starting pitching staff for you to get a good starting five in a year or two. But if you can get one or two of those, because you have the big horses coming in Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Hall and Kyle Bradish, but you need five guys in a rotation. And ideally, you have some guys in the bullpen who can work either as a tandem starter, as a piggyback, as long relief. So... If one or two of these guys can turn into something, that's really all you need. Absolutely. And you mentioned the bullpen. The bullpen has also looked really good it has. so far. It The bullpen looked great to start the season last year, and I think we probably overreacted. I think bullpen stats in general fluctuate very quickly and very easily throughout the season. I mean, look at the great starts that we saw Tanner Scott and Paul Fry get out to last year, and then they kind of flamed out. Part of that could have been because they were coming off decreased workload in 2020. But my point being, I think pitchers adjust. Pitchers come out of the gate better than hitters, typically, in a season. April is a better month for pitchers than it is hitters, historically. And also, bullpen stats for four games are so minuscule. However, that's not to take anything away from Jorge Lopez, who we both thought would be the quote-unquote Orioles reliever of the year. He looked great yesterday closing out that win. He did, and I think... For me, when I look at the bullpen, the probably the most encouraging things are the younger guys that we haven't seen in the majors so far. Because when you watch Brian Baker and Felix Bautista pitch, you go, okay, yeah, they belong in the majors. Yeah, those are major league caliber relievers. And Cianal Perez as well has not had a ton of major league experience over the course of his career, but you've watched him pitch over the last few games that's a major league reliever, which is really encouraging for a bullpen where you had a bunch of guys pretty much making their major league debuts. I mean, Brian Baker, what, I think only had an one inning. inning. Yeah. Felix Bautista had not pitched in the majors before. CNL Perez, like I mentioned, wasn't making his major league debut, but didn't have a ton of experience. It's a lot of question marks. Yeah. And at least so far in the very small sample size, they've looked good against good lineups. And I think it's encouraging because with the cancellation of the Rule 5 draft, our first reaction was, well, the Orioles probably missed out on a chance to get an impact reliever. We saw them take Max Aroller and Tyler Wells last year. 
both of those guys they started in the pen, and they got an impact pitcher in Tyler Wells, whether he's a reliever or a starting go- starter going forward. So not having the Rule 5 draft kind of robbed them of that opportunity. But with CNL Perez and Brian Baker, those guys were early waiver claims. They picked those guys up before the lockout, before the Rule 5 draft uncertainty hit. So it's making up for the fact that the Orioles did not were not able to get an impact reliever via the Rule 5 draft. So it kind of softens the blow of the cancellation of the Rule 5 draft. Right, and if these younger bullpen arms turn into quality bullpen arms, we're looking at this pen a lot differently. Absolutely, and Dylan Tate being another guy returning that I think is important. But got to see if, if they can keep it up throughout the season. Right. Again, small sample size, but encouraging to see nonetheless, yes. especially against a formidable lineup in the race like we saw. Bruce Zimmerman was excellent yesterday, Brendan. And this is one area I am careful not to overreact. In 2021, his counting stats were pretty good. Had an ERA hovering around five. Strikeout numbers were fine. But then you dug a little bit deeper and you looked at his stat cast numbers and you thought this is not sustainable. Yesterday, I think we saw how Bruce Zimmerman is able to play with fire and get away with it most times. He loaded the bases at one point and was able to get out of the jam. He doesn't have overpowering stuff, and that's just how it is. He was great in his home opener, but I do have some concerns, Brendan, about him being a starter long-term. I do as well, but I think, first and foremost, the start yesterday was really cool. It was was, awesome. I was a little bit worried about Bruce Zimmerman because coming in, you knew the emotions were going to be running high, pitching in front of hometown fans. The home opener in Baltimore for Bruce Zimmerman clearly meant a lot. And you didn't really know how he would react to that on the mound. And he reacted great. Throws four scoreless innings. But like you said, the stuff with Bruce Zimmerman is not elite. He is not going to give you six or seven scoreless innings more than likely. But it's kind of the same story of what we saw last year with Zimmerman, where he's not going to be a number one or a number two but he's got a chance to stick around as a number four or a number five. Because if he gets you through four, five, maybe six innings, yesterday obviously doesn't allow a run, which is fantastic. That's going to help you win a lot of baseball games. But even if he goes five innings, three or four earned, that keeps you in the game. That doesn't lose you anything. And that's what we saw from him last year. He didn't lose you any games. So if he can continue to do that, and play with fire a little bit, but not get completely burned, maybe Bruce Zimmerman can stick around as a number four or number five starter. But again, it's not going to be elite production because the stuff just isn't good enough to get him deep into games. This is where the conflict between the present and the future comes into focus because I think at the present moment, you look at his stat line and you say, he's good enough to keep going in this rotation. Give him the ball another time. It was like what we saw in those six starts from Chris Ellis last year. The ERA is low enough. He's getting you through three or four, maybe eventually five innings, and he's getting the ball to the bullpen. That's good enough for now. You look down the road and you say, Grayson Rodriguez, Kyle Bradish, D.L. Hall, those guys are going to be coming up. And with the emergence of potentially Mike Bauman, maybe Zach Lowther, that could be an issue going ahead of him. That could be in Bruce Zimmerman's way. And he's going to not just have to be solid. He's going to have to be better than solid in order to hold down a spot in in this rotation. But for the time being, 
I don't think Brandon Hyde's going to complain about four scoreless innings in his home opener at Camden Yards. No, not at all. And certainly when you look long-term with Bruce Zimmerman, Grayson Rodriguez is going to get starts over him. D.L. <laughs> Hall is going to get starts over him. It's, it's just what's going to happen because those are the guys. But Bruce Zimmerman, at least so far, has been solid enough where you feel comfortable throwing him every five days knowing that he is going to keep you in the baseball game. Yeah. And for a rebuilding team that is not going to be winning a ton of games this year, that's enough. In terms of reacting appropriately or overreacting, where do you fall on reacting to Tyler Wells' first rough start of the season? Look, my Tyler Wells take that I thought he would lead starters in ERA this season is already out there, but I am still not really overreacting to this Tyler Wells start. It's not just because of my take. Tyler Wells, we saw the stuff last year. It's not like we don't know if Tyler Wells can get out major league hitting. We don't know if he can do it as a starter. Maybe that's something that doesn't work out, but I am not freaking out about this Tyler Wells start. He ran into the best team in the American League last year with a very good lineup, gives up four runs in an inning and two-thirds. Yeah, that's not great, but I think we really have to put it in context. It's his first ever start in the major leagues, and I know he was an effective reliever last year, but it's it's different being a starter. It's something that you need to adjust to mentality-wise, routine-wise, everything. It's probably going to be some growing pains with Tyler Wells for a little while as we are adjusting to him being a starting pitcher, but the stuff is good enough and we saw it last year. We saw him get major league hitters out consistently. The stuff is good enough where I think he will be fine down the road. It's just an adjustment period. It is a different challenge. It's tough going up against a raised lineup that is incredibly patient at the plate. And especially early in games, they come in with a game plan. They know how to attack a pitcher. And they were waiting on all of his stuff in that start on Sunday. And I think it got to him a little bit because... He was fine through the first inning. He had a couple strikeouts in that first inning. Uh, yes, it went strikeout, single, strikeout, ground out in the first. So he lied that one hit. You thought, oh, he's going to adjust just fine. Runs into a wall in the second inning and ends up giving up a two-run homer to Brandon Lau. That was a moment where it broke his back, and I think it was frustrating for him. Afterwards, I mean, the guy has a, an incredible mentality. He's been through a lot in his life, and he's talked about how it's gotten him through Tommy John back in 2019, and it's gotten him through everything that he's gotten through to the point where he is now. He was taking the positives out of that start, and that's good. He cannot beat himself up after this, I think. And similar to us, we cannot overreact to something like a bad first start against the American League's premier team, at least in 2021, in the Tampa Bay Rays. Yeah, there's not a better team in the American League than the Tampa Bay Rays until somebody else proves otherwise. Yeah. Because they have been the best team in the league for a while now. And it's easy to believe in Tyler Wells, the pitcher. It's easy to believe in Tyler Wells, the person, which means it's easy for me to believe that he will probably succeed in this role as he's succeeded in the past. The frustrating thing is you can say it's the Rays. That's a really good team. That's going to be the Orioles slate in 2022. They're going to have to face the Rays 19 times, the Red Sox, the Yankees, the Blue Jays 19 times. So at some point, these pitchers are going to have to cut it against 
the premier teams in the American League because that's those are the teams that the Orioles are going up against in this division. They will. I just think it's way too early to think that Tyler Wells is not going to cut it as a starter. That's fair, and I, I'm sure you know he will get another turn in the rotation. We'll see if he can go a little bit deeper than an inning and two-thirds. Continuing with the trouble spots that the Orioles have run into so far, Rugnet Odor did not get the start on opening day, but has gotten some starts since. He's appeared in every game so far and has just two hits so far in his first 13 at-bats. No walks, no extra base hits, not impacting the game in any meaningful way, Brendan, and not standing out defensively through the first four games. No, he's got 13 plate appearances, no walks like you mentioned, four strikeouts, and you are playing Rugnet Odor against right-handed pitching. If it's a lefty on the mound, you're probably starting Ramon Arias, but Odor so far, just one hit in 11 plate appearances against righties. Calvin Gutierrez only has four plate appearances. He doesn't have a hit yet has not played much third base because you've been facing right-handed pitching, and Ramon Arias has gotten the start at third while Rudan Odor plays second. Ramon Arias has been pretty good so far to start the year. Four hits in four games, including two doubles. It's what you expect. Right. It's what you were thinking that you would get out of Ramon Arias. Not elite play, but pretty good. Yeah. So, again, it is only four games that we've seen Rudan Odor play in. We are trying not to wildly overreact here. But at what point do you say, all right, Ramon Arias, you're starting at second more often than not, and then the playing time split comes between Calvin Gutierrez and Rukneto Odor a little more evenly than it is right now. I feel like I'm getting deja vu. A year ago, this conversation was Rio Ruiz, Pat Vileka. When do you call up Jemai Jones? Right, and Jemai Jones, by the way, Again, a very small sample size so far in AAA Norfolk. Just a casual OPS over 1.1 in six games with two doubles, a home run, five walks, just three strikeouts, and an on-base percentage of 500. And that's not even to mention Rylan Bannon, who is seven for his first 22 with three walks, a homer, and a double. Both those guys are (laughs) capable second basemen. Yeah. Not to say that they're going to come up and start hitting 300 in the big leagues like they have been doing in Norfolk, but it puts a little bit of heat on Rugnet Odor's seat. I think it puts a lot of bit of heat on Rugnet Odor's seat, especially when you have Ramon Arias and Calvin Gutierrez already where, I mean, personally, Paul, I would be comfortable right now starting Ramon Arias at second starting Calvin Gutierrez at third more often than not, given what we saw at the end of last year and how good Gutierrez looked in spring training, and then maybe Jemai Jones or Ryland Bannon, you give them more than five or six games, but if their pace continues at AAA Norfolk and Rugnet Odor's pace continues like this, that's hard to justify. The Orioles do have more invested in Rugnet Odor than they do Calvin Gutierrez because they signed him to a major league deal this offseason. And keep in mind, it's not like Odor is the much older seasoned veteran and Calvin Gutierrez is he seems a that prospect. Way, but he's not. They're about a year apart in terms of age. And I know Odor came up much younger and has much more experience at the big league level, but it's been a while since we have seen Rugnet Odor be a productive big league hitter. It just has. It's not since his Texas Rangers days several years ago that he was anywhere above an an average major league hitter. I know he still has some pop in his bat, and he has multiple 30 home run seasons, 
But that was a while ago. And until we see a little more from him at the plate, it makes it difficult to justify keeping him there for an extended amount of time when you have these incredibly talented and highly producing prospects right underneath him. But incredibly, they're not the top 10 prospects in the Orioles. They're not. But Jemai Jones, I would say, is very talented. Jemai Jones is very talented. Incredibly was a a stretch. But my point being that these are guys that are top 30 prospects, or at least were. I mean, look, Terran Vavra, in his first taste of AAA, is 6 for 22 with a homer, two walks, two doubles. That's not MVP caliber. He's not going to win the MVP in the International League. And But look, these guys, you give them a month, and they could be still producing at this level, and you say, what is the justification for keeping Rugnet Odor? I think if you get to a month, there's not one. Especially, Mike Elias has talked about this is the season where we start to see it. We start to call up the prospects. We start to see the building blocks for the future actually at the major league level for this Orioles team. And if Jemai Jones, Taron Vavra, Ryland Bannon, whoever else continues to hit at AAA and a, what, 27-year-old Rugnet Odor is not producing, how are you justifying that after a month? Not after four games, obviously, but after a month, I think I'm there with you. The Orioles don't want to rush any of these guys, but keep in mind, even the prospects that we just talked about in Norfolk have guys on their heels. Even Terran Vavra and Ryland Bannon and Jemai Jones, guess what? You go a couple of rungs down the ladder, you've got Connor Norby, you've got Cesar Prieto, both those guys in high A Aberdeen, just a couple spots below AAA Norfolk. So when those guys get called up, are they going to even have enough time? Is Jemai and Bannon and Vavra, are they going to have enough time to prove that they can be long-term starters before we're talking about when are Connor Norby and Cesar Prieto going to get their debuts? Great problems to have. Great problems to have, absolutely. But my point being, there is a backlog, if you will, of talent. And even then, you could look at AA and look at the three outstanding shortstops that they have there knowing that not all of them are going to play shortstop all the time. So you could even throw Joey Ortiz into that conversation. He would probably be, not probably, he's already an elite defensive shortstop. That's an elite defensive second baseman, more than likely. We talked to him down in in Bowie last week. He said he's comfortable at any of those infield spots. Kyle Moore, the manager, is going to give them all spots, all time at the three different infield positions, at second, at third, and at short. So. One of those guys surely is going to be an above-average second baseman. And I think it's important to point out, too, that when we're talking about the infield right now of, you know, guys like Rugnet Odor, Calvin Gutierrez, it's not frustration where we're coming at it from you have all these prospects and they're not getting playing time so far at the majors. Those prospects, I think you and I would both agree, are probably more than likely not ready yet. Taron Vavra did not get any run at AAA last year. He needs to show some more at AAA Norfolk. Definitely. Uh, who was I just saw? Jemai Jones did not look good at the major league level last year. Those guys probably need a little bit more time. So it's not a frustration sense of Rugnet Odor needs to get out of here. Jemai Jones is ready right now. But it's more of just excitement about the fact that there are so many prospects throughout the system that are going to be here pretty soon. And it's a matter of time before they get here. I threw out on Twitter the other day, at Pullman, kind of give me a follow, the fact that the 
Norfolk Tides this year could be this year's version of last year's Bowie Bay Sox, where the Bay Sox jumped out to this incredibly hot start, and they had so much talent. They were the best team in minor league baseball through the first couple months of the season. All of that talent that we just saw in AA last year is now filtered up to AAA. I think we're going to see not just some incredible individual performances from the Tides, but I think we could see a ton of wins from that team that now Buck Britton, he has won everywhere he has been so far. Now he has the opportunity to win at AAA. I was going to say, especially with Buck Britton there. He just wins. He does. And you would have to imagine the Orioles are pretty high on him in terms of player development as well, or else he wouldn't be at the most important level for getting a player ready for the major leagues. Absolutely. And last year, one more storyline for the minor leagues. Last year it was about for Bowie, the pitching staff coming into that season. Remember they had Kevin Smith. They had Grayson Rodriguez who joined that team early in the season. Not immediately. They had Kyle Bradish who took just three starts there before he moved on up. Mike Bauman came through Bowie DL hall before the injury DL hall to start the season. They had some incredibly talented pitching prospects at AA last year. This year, it's about the hitting. Between Westberg, Gunnar Henderson, Ortiz, Andrew Dashbaugh, Zach Watson. Adam Hall. Adam Hall. They have some incredibly talented hitters this year that I'm excited to see. So last year, I think to start the season especially, the storyline was pitching in Bowie. A lot of those guys are up to AAA now. But now a lot of the hitters, especially the hitters that Michael Elias has drafted, because we know that he prioritizes young hitters and college hitters in the draft, all those guys are now in Bowie. And that's right. going to be a run-producing team. And I'm sure we will talk much, much more about the minor leagues as we continue throughout the season. But they're getting closer. They are. I mean, they are on the way. And it's really exciting. Any other storylines for the first four games of the big league season that you want to touch on? Yeah, unfortunately, I think we have to at least mention Cedric Mullins. Okay. He has not looked great so far. He's got 18 plate appearances, just three hits, is currently leading the American League in strikeouts with nine, one walk, and no extra base hits. And I am certainly not going to overreact to Cedric Mullins. We came into the season thinking already that it was going to be very hard for him to reproduce a 30-30 season. Like, that just more than likely was not going to happen again. Because the biggest thing, I think, going against Cedric Mullins right now is that nobody in the league is surprised anymore. You had a pretty large chunk of time at the beginning of last year where you were surprised when Cedric Mullins started beating you because nobody thought that that was going to happen last season. But now, you know who Cedric Mullins is. When you play the Baltimore Orioles, he is more than likely at the top of your game plan as a pitcher about how to attack. Literally because he's at the top of the lineup as well. So Cedric Mullins, it's going to be an adjustment period, I think, because he is now facing pitchers that are really, really game planning for him. The book is kind of out on Cedric Mullins. He has lost the element of surprise, and he is clearly a good enough player where I think he will not have a major issue here bouncing back and trying to get things on the right track here. But I think it is still at least noteworthy how he has played so far this year. The guy that I would expect Cedric Mullins to be leaning on at this time, Trey Mancini. We've seen times throughout Trey Mancini's career where he is entering a new season, a new regular season, and he's putting a lot of pressure on himself. And he feels like he needs to carry the team offensively 
and we see his frustration boil over at times when he strikes out in a big situation in a game. We've seen him slam his helmet down. We've seen him get frustrated, and he's openly acknowledged that he's sometimes too hard on himself. We've already seen a couple moments like that from Cedric yesterday. The other day, I think up in Tampa, he was throwing his bat down. He was upset at himself. Said a bad word on TV. Said Paul. It, well, yeah. Don't read Allegedly. Lips. No, no lip reading here. And we have some sample size to say that he is probably going to be a little bit hard on himself because, look, he's, he's reigning silver slugger, reigning 30-30 player, as you said. So he's naturally going to feel that pressure, especially as he transitions from surprise candidate to veteran leader. Yeah. Offensively, the heavy one of the heaviest hitters in a lineup. So I would expect him and hope that he leans on Trey here so that he cannot be too hard on himself play a little bit more pressure-free baseball so that he can go back to the Cedric Mullins that we saw last year who was so loose at the plate and was not concerned about where anybody was, what anybody was throwing him, what anybody thought of him. So I'm hoping that that Cedric Mullins can come out again. Yeah, and he's still providing you great value defensively. We saw some of the plays he made yesterday to help preserve that shutout. He's still a very good defensive center fielder. But it's kind of interesting to note, too, like you said, he goes from surprise player to franchise centerpiece very, very quickly. It's the same thing with Trey. Trey did the same thing in 2019 when the Orioles have the, had the big fire sales, Michael Elias comes in, and Trey Mancini had to talk all offseason and all first couple months of the season about, you were a fun young guy for a couple years, now you are expected to carry the the load offensively, and to be a clubhouse voice. That's something that Cedric Mullins is going to have to adjust to as well. But I expect, given what we know about his personality, his leadership qualities, that he will adjust. It may just take some time. Yeah, I'm not worried about Cedric Mullins. It's just noteworthy at this point. Right. Absolutely. All right, any other topics you want to get into, Brian? I think that's it, Paul. I think we have cranked as much content as possible out of the first Four games of the year. Absolutely. And we will have a much larger sample size, a sample size that will have more than doubled by the time we join you next on the Masson All Access Podcast. At Brandon Morty is his Twitter handle. I am at Paul Mancano, of course. You can catch the podcast live every week, streaming to Facebook and YouTube. And of course, listen to it as well on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, anywhere you get your podcasts, you can get the Apple, the Masson All Access Podcast, excuse me. And you can give us five stars an upvote on YouTube, all that good stuff. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to Bobby Blanco for producing this episode. Thanks to you for commenting along as well. We'll catch you next time.